Oh, hi. It's me, Katya. Um, I have a favor to ask. Don't hang up. It's not a huge favor, but it's something that I need you to do. The last few years have been rough for so many reasons. And, you know, we've covered it all. And you, our loyal listeners, have been right by our side. We rely on you. You rely on us. You know how it goes. You always come through for us when we ask you to, except when you don't. What we've observed, actually, is that when the country's in a like, deep crisis, like really deep, the public radio listener, you guys, you step up. You feel the urgency, you donate. But then when the news temperature drops, even by a few degrees, and it feels less like we're on a precipice, you just don't feel as compelled to give. You know, you put the pocketbook away. Or maybe you just feel exhausted by the relentless nature of it all. And you want to check out for a bit. We're all human. I understand the impulse. I really, really do. But here's the deal. If we don't keep this show financially supported, it will go away. It's that simple. I mean, how would you feel if the next time the news cycle spins completely out of control and you turn to your favorite podcast to help you through it and we're just not there? Okay, picture it. It's not like it can't happen. Here's the solution. Become a sustaining member. Then you don't have to think about it again for another year. It's 10 bucks a month works out to about two bucks a week. We do two shows a week, stack a dollar a show. I mean, you probably paid twice that for your coffee this morning. And hey, here's an incentive for you. If you become a sustaining member before the end of April, you'll be entered to win one of Brooke's crocheted hats. You know you've always wanted one. To be honest, she spent most of the pandemic crocheting, so we have a ton like a pile. The odds are good here. This is not the lottery. You could walk away with a hat. So do it now. You'll feel good. We'll feel good. It'll be great. Go to onthemedia.org, hit support, or text OTM to 70101. It would really mean the world to us. Thank you so much. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. A new poll this week from the AP and Nork Center for Public Affairs Research found that when asked, close to half of Americans say they are very concerned that Russia would directly target the U.S. with nuclear weapons. And another three in ten are somewhat concerned. Given that Vladimir Putin did put his nuclear forces on high alert at the start of the invasion of Ukraine, it's hardly surprising people are worried. In this week's show, coming your way on Friday, we'll dig into our current anxiety over nuclear conflagration. But for this podcast, we'll revisit an interview I did with playwright Anne Washburn. We were discussing her 2012 work, Mr. Burns, a post-electric play. It depicts a world devastated by a nuclear incident of some kind in which the survivors cope by retelling one episode of The Simpsons. You got a letter too, Bart. I'm going to kill you. I was really curious to see what would happen to 
a story over time, under kind of extreme conditions. And the story that you chose to follow across the decades is an episode from The Simpsons called Cape Fear. It's The Simpsons' version of the Scorsese remake of the Robert Mitchum original, which was (laughs) itself based on a novel. In the episode, Bart was involved in putting Sideshow Bob away to prison for his various incredible misdeeds. And Sideshow Bob is sending him death threats. If released, would you pose any threat to one Bart Simpson? Bart Simpson? The spirited little scamp who twice foiled my evil schemes and sent me to this dank, urine-soaked hellhole. And finally, the family, to sort of escape him, goes away on a houseboat in the middle of a river. Don't worry, Mrs. Simpson. We've helped hundreds of people in danger. We have places your family can hide in peace and security. Cape Fear, Terror Lake, New Horror Field, Screamville. Ooh, Ice Creamville. Uh, No, Screamville. And, of course, Sideshow Bob shows up again, and there's a kind of a duel to the death which gets very involved with Gilbert and Sullivan. Well, Bart, any last requests? You have such a beautiful voice. Guilty as charged. I was wondering if you could sing the entire score of the HMS Pinafore. Very well, Bart. I shall send you to heaven before I send you to hell. And there's a climactic scene on the river with the performance of HMS Pinafore. What never, no never, what never, hardly ever, he's hardly ever sick. And finally, Bart is saved when the ship runs aground next to a a brothel. And a whole bunch of police, they come streaming out and and eventually decide to arrest him. (laughs) So now let's turn to your work. Mr. Burns, a post-electric play, Act 1, Scene 1. We open on a group of people around a campfire, and they're really trying very hard to remember this episode of The Simpsons. Gotcha, Bob. Take Bart out of the hole and onto the deck and the crocodile. And I think it seems at first very much like an activity which is very familiar to us. All of us at one point or another been in a group of people trying to put together a TV episode and sort of enjoying <laughs> it and laughing at it and relaxing with it. Homer's like, hey, everybody, want to drive through that tacky patch? And they're like, and it's only as the play kind of moves forward and we hear a sort of strange noise in the shrubbery and everyone stops what they're doing, pulls out guns, that we realize the stakes are different. And the person who emerges from the woods is a guy named Gibson who describes his path to this campsite. And so we're able to piece together that essentially the world is in flames. You kind of infer that this is probably a string of terrible nuclear incidents. All we know is that now people, they're basically in survival mode. Mm -hmm. How does Act One end? After much sort of struggle to integrate Gibson into the group, they start to retell the Simpsons episode. And there are numerous Gilbert and Sullivan quotations in that episode of The Simpsons. And Gibson, as it turns out, was a member of his local Gilbert and Sullivan Society. <laughs> so he has that information. Say words, never, never, never get sick at sea. I'm never, never sick at sea. What never, no never, what never. Well, hardly ever, he's hardly ever sick at sea. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> There's a little parenthetical in the stage directions. Please note that these are people who in normal life would never be interested in the introduction of more Gilbert and Sullivan into their immediate social environment. But in the context, they're thrilled. So he joins in, he's able to contribute to the group, and they all kind of join in and merrily sing as the 
the light sort of sweetly go out on this scene at the end of Act One. And then Act Two begins. It's seven years later. The Simpsons episode is still being told, but it's no longer a a campfire tale. So that same group of people plus a new member have become, they've become a roving Simpsons troupe, and they (laughs) will retell and recreate as best they can episodes from The Simpsons, one of which is Cape Fear. At last, Bart Simpson, at last, while you and your family cozy yourselves away in this houseboat. We sort of discover they're one of a number of groups which are are doing similar things. There are other Simpsons groups. They also make reference to the medical drama group. I think there's an ER or house. (laughs) The landscape is sort of littered with these troops who are handling TV shows of the past. There is reference made to the Shakespeare's. There's a group doing Shakespeare, but it seems pretty clear that that's the most low-rent group you could fall into, and only if you are really diseased and desperate. But the thing is, they are treating these works as unchangeable relics of the past. It's seven years after the apocalyptic event wherein our civilization was destroyed, and seven years is not a long period of time. And it really seemed to me that seven years after the apocalypse, people are going to want what's certain, what's reassuring, what reminds them very solidly of of the old time. So the value for entertainment at that time is not going to be in creative expression or commentary on the moment. The value is going to be on the troupe which can pull together the most exacting replica of a cartoon possible. No motivation, no consequence. That's the point of a cartoon. Where else do we get to experience that? Does that mean that these roving troops never really comment on their lives as they live it? I think they don't comment at all during the episodes, but the episode does have commercial breaks. And I feel like the commercials are where you would have latitude. There are two commercials that we see in the second act, and one of them is a woman comes home from a long, tedious day at the office. You know, she takes off her earrings, she checks her purse, she removes her shoes. She makes sort of uh, exasperated noises. Her husband is sympathetic. She's like, oh, you should take a bath. She's like, I'll take a bath. Can I get you a Chablis? Yes, I'd love a Chablis. (laughs) (laughs) Better. A little. (laughs) And as she's preparing the bath, She's talking about someone at work who's stealing lunch bags out of the office refrigerator, which is all sort of careless and merry, but there is no way in that kind of future that anyone would appreciate someone going up on stage and saying, oh my God, we can be looted or raped or robbed at any moment and there's very little to prevent anyone from doing it. That's not going to be a welcome commentary, but there is kind of nostalgia, A, for a time when somebody snitching lunches out of the office refrigerator was the worst thing that might happen to you in a day. But also there is this sense, I think, in which this weird roving figure who steals mysteriously and no one can seem to control is the very lighthearted shadow of of something which would be of a concern at the time. Menace looming behind you. You just don't see it except maybe out of the corner of your eye. (laughs) Yes, in this case embodied in the jerk who's stealing lunches out of the refrigerator with seemingly no moral compass whatsoever. Like Sideshow Bob. Like Sideshow Bob. I mean, that story, that original story, that Kate Fear story is so wonderful because the Robert Mitchum character who becomes the De Niro character who becomes Sideshow Bob is just pitiless and he's remorseless. So now to your third act. It is Mm. 75 years later. And the acting out of the Simpson episodes especially this one, Cape Fear, seems to have become a massive production, a cultural mm-hmm. touchstone like Faust, maybe. Simpsons, da, 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 da. 
Flanders sees his cross. Because God is always handy. Fight and fight and fight and fight and fight. The birds are calling for the dawn on the horizon. 75 years later, it's become a kind of crazy, gaudy melodrama, which is really about violence and it's about contamination and Sideshow Bob has morphed into Mr. Burns, who in the series is the nuclear power plant owner. But he's become that same kind of hideous, inexorable threat, completely poisonous, completely toxic. Except that Sideshow Bob is, you know, vain and vanquished. And it seems like Mr. Burns is invincible. This is it, Burns. You're never coming back. What? Never? No, never. What? Never? Kill me now, Bart Simpson. Kill me all you like, but don't be surprised when you and I meet again. I'm never leaving. I don't go away. You can't stop him. I mean, in the first act... No one knows what's going on, particularly. The characters are very much dealing with rumor. You know, like, how far does contamination go? Does the wind spread? You know, where do you need to be to be safe? And no one knows. No one knows we're safe, which people both speak about in short bursts and mostly try not to speak about and try not to think about, because why would you? It would be crazy-making. And in the second act, there's a kind of a speech where one of the characters talks about the contamination that no one has any idea of, you know, from chemical plants. You know, a tank dissolves or it explodes and it's by a river or it's on an aquifer. So second act is a little bit haunted by this sense of contamination which is not understood and not possible to do anything about. And so in the third act, you do see this character who really sort of takes that on. Mr. Burns. Mr. Burns, who just is just the force which cannot be stopped, cannot be reckoned with, cannot be vanquished. There is a sort of a happy ending, but it doesn't come about because Bart is smart or is brave. The hand of God does not intervene. He only succeeds because he manages to just cussedly hang on long enough for events to change in his favor. But there's no sense in the third act that virtue is rewarded. If you survived, it's because you somehow held on. and It's a function of luck. It's a function of luck. Why The Simpsons? It was not a Simpsons-specific idea originally. I had sort of thought Seinfeld or Friends or Cheers or any program which was cheerful, which a lot of people had known. And I don't remember how I arrived at The Simpsons. It turns out to work really well, partly, I think, because it's been around for so long. Mm -hmm. And also, because it's a cartoon, it has so many characters, and it's such a huge, wide world. I think also that a lot of sort of the big popular comedies are about friend groups and intentionally formed communities. And The Simpsons is very much about the family you're stuck with and the community you're stuck mm-hmm. with and how you make the best of it, which I think would be more resonant in a post-apocalyptic yeah. world. I mean, people would be longing for the families that were gone. They would be struggling with issues of how you create a community which isn't completely dysfunctional. Your play has been produced year after year after year since it debuted. Does it feel different now? Does it resonate differently? Only in the sense that I think the question of nuclear annihilation just feels a little more present in our culture right Mm -hmm. now. It isn't about a nuclear war and the result. It is about nuclear. I mean, Burns is not a PSA, almost to my regret. I have many bossy opinions on the topic of what it is for humans to handle a technology they actually are demonstrably unable to control. 
Nuclear power is completely safe as long as there is no human failure of any kind, no infrastructure failure of any kind. It's completely safe as long as it is controlled by a civilization which progresses continuously with, you know, smooth segues from one civilization to the next for a period of about 10,000 years. And that's something which has never happened in the history of human beings. There are disruptions and there are wars. And under those conditions... Nuclear power with its intense dependence for safety on an incredibly vulnerable electrical grid is not completely safe. <laughs> so that was a source of tension which mm-hmm. drove the making of the play. There is something exciting about the breakdown of systems, mm. though, isn't there? Something yeah. liberating about that? I think it's immensely soothing to think about the apocalypse <laughs> because it's the point where there's no use being anxious about the apocalypse. <laughs> You know, you can move on to new, more concrete problems. The suspense is over. It was a pleasure talking to you. It was a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Anne Washburn is a playwright, and the play we've discussed is Mr. Burns, a post-electric play. Thanks for listening to the Midweek Podcast. We'll be back at the end of the week with more for you. In the meantime, could you go to our website, onthemedia.org, and donate? We really can't do this without you, and now's the time. Thanks a bunch. See you Friday. I'm Brooke Gladstone.